Listener Production. Harley Breen says the main reason he got into comedy was because he wasn't good at anything else. But don't believe him. There is a whole lot more to the new host of Making It than meets the eye. Breen grew up in Queensland, where he was the son of a Methodist reverend. His upbringing was deeply religious, and Breen was rarely exposed to any kind of popular culture. I don't think anything much has changed. I'm still incredibly naive when it comes to popular culture. Like, I really don't know what's going on. After dropping out of school at 15, he was determined and focused to make stand-up comedy his career. There is a new term for men who look like me. We're referred to as a lumbosexual. (laughs) That's what you call a hipster man who looks like he can cut a tree down. (laughs) With a craft beer. Three kids, a bunch of tours and a couple of television shows later, life is loud, rambunctious and full. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Later, I will be joined by Tate McGregor for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my surprising and illuminating chat with Harley Breen. Harley Breen, coming to me live from lockdown. How has your lockdown been? How are you faring, mate? Oh, look, it's just never-ending at this point, isn't it? I, it is. uh, I, I've done I've done a lot of lockdowns. Oh, wow. Which one's the best? Well, <laughs> the short ones are the best. The one in, <laughs> the one in Brisbane was really good. Uh, it was only like a four- or five-day thing uh, towards the end of last year, beginning of this year. Uh, I mean, the Melbourne one is just, uh, this one particularly, it's just Groundhog Day. It's just never-ending. Yeah. And it's getting to the point of, losing identity I think at this point and it's a it's a difficult thing being in a job where your job is your identity and a part of that identity is being in front of crowds of people uh, and the ability to do that has been decimated over the course of almost two years so it's yeah it's getting uh, it's getting a bit much. Are you one of those people who is an introvert and finds the coming out of lockdown hard or are you more extroverted, can't wait to be back out on stage and just want all the people around you? I would answer yes to both of those things. Uh, I think personally I'm an introvert. I come off, I think people, if they were asked about me and they didn't know me, they would say I was an extrovert. Um, But I'm certainly an introvert and I love being on my own. Uh, I love being in my shed. If I'm hanging out with friends, I'm I'm very much a one-on-one kind of person Mm. but then I uh, my job is being in front of groups of people and I honestly can't wait the second that I can be on a stage and in front of a crowd of people I will uh, I will run to it you just mentioned the shed what's happening in the shed what are you making what are you doing in the shed I've just finished sort of um, organising the shed because a clean shed helps you make things Um, but I the last project I did I made a miniature caravan for a Italian greyhound yeah, right. Like for the greyhound to pull or no, for the greyhound to live in? For the greyhound to live in. Amazing. Yeah, it's a little tiny dog. And uh, one of uh, Marty Sheargold's producers uh, has this dog that comes into the studio. And so I uh, offered to make a, a dog bed and just for some stupid reason decided it was going to be a caravan and uh, <laughs> built this little mini vintage caravan with a lot of fun, actually. 
As you do, as you do. And you just, you referred to the show just now. Tell us about the show because the show is all about making stuff. The show is all about celebrating uh, making. Uh, makers, uh, celebrating the people who do the making and celebrating these the, the, the things that people craft and put together out of all sorts of different products. And um, it's been something that I've been genuinely uh, interested and devoted to, I think, since I was a teenager. Never thought that it would be any part of my job. It's just a thing I enjoy doing. I, uh, I like picking up a paintbrush or um, specifically I love uh, woodwork. And um, then the opportunity came along to host making it. And I was very fortunate to be cast uh, with Susie Yusuf, who's uh, become, she was a friend for 15 years, but she's become a very close friend, uh, auntie to my children. My eldest child has her phone number and they just text without my uh, interference whatsoever. So, yeah, it's been, it's been great to celebrate uh, those sorts of crafty projects that people do. Yeah, I mean, was it part of the audition? Was it like, come in, show us your hosting, but also tell us what you're making? Like, what do you got? We want to see the Greyhound caravan. I already knew about the American version, um, which uh, is hosted by the people who created it, um, Nick Offerman and Amy Poller. And the reason I'd seen the American version is because all I watch on YouTube are people making things. Like, it's that's honestly uh, all I watch. I stumbled across... Nick Offerman, who has this beautiful, uh, huge warehouse of a workspace in LA, um, and obviously when you have a career like him, it comes with a fair amount of money, meaning you can have all the tools and all the timber and uh, that you want. And then the algorithm of YouTube then said, oh, you must like this, and showed me the show. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then my manager called and said, oh, would you have any interest in auditioning for this? I'm like, yes, this is what I want to do. I'm a mega fan. Yeah, totally. Well, because it, it combines comedy and making uh, in this really lovely way. And I was like, well, that's sort of perfect. Unfortunately, I don't get to make anything on the show. No, um, you're an observer. I'm an observer. The production is just absolutely jam-packed with products and tools and, and all of that. And and there was quite often the producers were tra- dragging me away from things going, come on, you've got to go and do a silly sketch. I was like, no, all right. Can't guarantee it. It'll all come together. Well, no pressure. It's got to or you're going home. Oh, so. really? <laughs> what they create. The Starship Rooster, I'm going to call it will be beyond your wildest imagination. Enchanting. A masterpiece. It's bonkers. Creations that'll make you go... Wow. And... Tell me about working with Susie. Obviously, she's been your mate for a long time, but what does working in a pair mean that you can do as a performer that you can't do solo? Uh, I would say the best thing that um, a good partnership brings... Um, and and especially Susie ticks the boxes on this, is yes and, which is a thing you say in impro, improvisation theatre, is you just, the offer that you're given, you just say yes to it and continue on. Or you say yes, but. So there's no no's, it's all yes and. And Susie is a brilliant improviser, but she's brilliant at doing that. So if I was on my own, you'd throw out an idea and hope the audience would go with it. But when you have a, a co-host and you throw out something silly and then they take it and go further with it and you know that there's they're holding that safety net that you'll be caught, it sort of um, unleashes the, the creative juices because you're like, oh, it doesn't matter what I do here, my mate's going to catch me 
and to the best of my ability, I did the same for her. It was just, yes, 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 whatever it is, let's just continue on. And so it created a really lovely environment uh, for, for both of us that it was like, oh, well, whatever she says, I'll go with it. Whatever I say, she'll go with it. It was good. What got you into stand-up in the first place? If we go back to you being, I don't know, a, a, a teenager, a 20-something, what made you want to do comedy? There's a heap of answers to that. My dad is an ex-Methodist uh, reverend, so I grew up uh, watching my dad do a performance every Sunday for 20 years. Yeah. So, I mean, that imprints on you. And it was actually him when I was about 15. You know, I'd always hold court at the family dinner table. Uh, I've got three siblings, so, you know, there's six of us sitting around the table. At a minimum, there were six of us because Dad was always bringing home lost dogs, as I call them. There'd be strays wandering in and having dinner with us and and I was already always telling stories and embellishing and Dad said, you should try stand-up. And and I didn't really know what it was. I'd never seen it. Uh, We had a fairly puritanical uh, household. Didn't have a lot of television or outside influences. I remember sneaking away with a friend to listen to a Billy Connolly album and uh, also snuck away to listen to um, Martin Malloy Brown album in the car. And yeah, wow. <laughs> thought I was going to go to hell. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, when I was about 19, I was starting to really move away from my beliefs and and from that sort of organised religion aspect of my life and w- was uh, looking at uh, acting and um, the acting world, which is incredibly uh, clicky and, and difficult to get into. And I was auditioning for schools for all the sort of the major ones around the country for NIDA and Whopper and VCA and did fairly well in the audition process but didn't make the final sort of jump to be accepted into those schools that year. And the advice I got from both Whopper and NIDA was to go out and get some acting experience, which I still find utterly insane because I was trying to go to school and they were like, <laughs> you don't have enough experience, yeah. go get some experience. It's like, no, don't, don't I go to school first and then, then I go out and get a job? So I went and tried to do that. And I was so naive. I just didn't know how to even get an audition. I, you know, I started looking at community theatre and I was looking in the yellow pages in Brisbane uh, for theatre restaurants and uh, in the same, the same section of the Yellow Pages, uh, the sit-down comedy club, which is a club that still exists in Brisbane, had an advertisement. I called them and I said, uh, can I get a gig? And they went, yep, our open mic night is uh, uh, next Tuesday. And uh, it was on a Thursday when I'd called. I was like, okay. So I just got together five minutes. I rehearsed in my dad's church on the sound system at dad's church with a couple of mates and went and did the gig. Uh, and the gig was, you know, there's, it's, it wasn't a bomb nor was it groundbreaking. There was, you know, not a huge amount to report on other than the fact that the whole room was full of budding comedians. That was the audience. Yeah, of course. The worst audience. I just loved it. I just, I just found the, the immediacy of having an idea, twisting it into a joke and attempting to make a group of people unify and laugh at the same time was um, something I'm still incredibly addicted to. And I, I, I guess I'd say I'd turn my back on acting. I just focused on stand-up and haven't really had another focus in 20 years. You said that your father was a reverend. How, mm. how did faith and religion shape your upbringing? 
it was it was all, all of my upbringing. It was everything. It was um, yeah. it was my life. There's no differentiating between who I was and what the belief and the day to day socialising was all church. Um, I was at church a very minimum of once a week um, for 20 years. Uh, often it was you know three four times a week, depending on different things that were happening because of dad's job. Yeah, it's a family business. Being a reverend, it's sort of, you know, you're the preacher's kid. Mum was the preacher's wife. We didn't have our own identity and it was, I mean, I love my dad. I've got a great relationship with him now, but it's an interesting thing to examine now with children because now my children are Harley Breen's kids, you know, in the same the same sort of way, you know, I'm up in front. My public profile is how people see me and, and I wonder how my kids will feel growing up. I mean, I'm not requiring them to believe a, a certain set of beliefs, so there's that difference. <laughs> but, Maybe uh, they have to believe Dad's funny. Is that, is that <laughs> yeah, the only no, rule? No, they don't have to believe that. They're not buying tickets. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> As a kid, you you grew up without a huge amount of access to popular culture, to television, mm. radio, whatever it might be, and then you end up on TV and radio <laughs> yeah. for a job later yeah. in life. Fill in the gap for me, I suppose. How do you go from sort of the world of popular culture being almost a foreign thing to literally making it and being part of it? What's to, what has to happen in, in between? Was it like a learning process? Yeah, it's a, I mean, there's a lot, but I don't think anything much has changed. I'm still incredibly naive when it comes to popular culture. Like, I really don't know what's going on. And, um, like, I, I've i tried to streamline my social media so that it's mostly outgoing. Um, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a lot of uh, incoming. Uh, like I said to you before, what I watch uh, is usually lonely men in their sheds making things. <laughs> I watch that on YouTube. <laughs> I watch Grand Designs. Um I listen to music that's mostly from the 70s. Not a, not a huge amount has changed. The fact that I'm now um, in some way involved in pop culture is uh, for the consumer rather than for me. It hasn't really changed m- me much. I, like I was always on stage anyway. It's just in the early years I was on stage in, in a church. So there, there was a huge amount of unpacking and there continues to be a lot of unpacking from having 20 or so years involved in such a rigid belief system and then finding out that that's not something that I actually believe in or think is real. And uh, I thought around the age between 20 and 22 when I was moving away from uh, the church and moving away from that belief that I'd be done and I'd be finished with it, I, I think it took a lot longer than that. It certainly took a long time to stop that little voice in your head. If you do that, you're going to hell. That's a horrible little demon to live in your head. Um, And now that is completely gone, uh, which is great. Um, But, yeah, it's sort of there's a lot of of unpacking uh, is the truth of it. And and I'm very fortunate that I have the dad that I have and the siblings that I have. We're all sort of on our own little journey and uh, um, of discovery and and I don't sit in judgment over any one of my family for their belief systems and um, to the best of their ability, they don't sit in judgment. <laughs> <laughs> They're giving me. it a shot. Yeah. A lot of us have been dealing with the 
I'm going to call it hell of homeschooling the last 18 months. You've got kids. Tell me what's homeschooling taught you about what kind of person you are? I am not an educator. No, none of us are. (laughs) Turns out you should go and get trained to do that (laughs) because it's hard. Totally it is. I only have one child um, doing at-home learning, um, which is my big kid from my first relationship. He is 11 and uh, it's been really challenging. For him, he's a really creative, passionate kid who, you know, is is writing songs. He rides a unicycle and juggles and writes poetry and paints and does all that. But in terms of structured education, what did they say? He's They, they sent a letter home about four or five months ago saying your kid's 12 months behind. And I'm like, oh, really? 12 months behind? I, w- I wonder what's happened in the last 12 months. Did anything... Anything bigger Did anything happen? happen? I don't, I don't know. know what it might be. Well, I've got so much respect for teachers as a result of this, um, this whole scenario. But I also think this sort of binary system of education is so outdated, uh, it doesn't consider the child that I was uh, when I was at school. I dropped out when I was 15 because it was, uh, and I still firmly believe it was just an absolute crock of shit. In terms of how they were trying to deal with who I was, which was to say I was a naughty kid and to shut up and do what you're mm-hmm. told, and they're doing exactly the same thing with my kid. And I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger at individuals. I'm pointing a finger at the whole system is telling my kid that he's wrong and that he needs to tick these boxes so that the system knows that they've done the right thing. And I and I, it's really frustrating because... If I had the time and, most importantly, the patience, I would do it myself and I I would devote myself to educating my children. But that is not for me and that is not for them. I remember reading at one point about the different kinds of learning and the different kinds of intelligence that we all have and we all possess different amounts of those and that school caters for two maybe three of the seven or eight types of learning. And if you're a kid who happens to learn and be talented and intelligent in the majority of the other forms of intelligence and learning, school can be a really tough place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I remember, uh, you know, sort of my closest friend in grade eight and nine, school was built for him. It was just, it was absolutely, the whole thing was built for him and, and it remains to be built for him. You know, he went on, to be um, valedictorian, he got ducks of the year and then valedictorian. I don't even know where those two things exist. He, he, you know, he absolutely smashed university. He's a physiotherapist and a medical doctor and has gone and done another degree after that. Like it's just all built for him. Whereas I dropped out at 15, got my year 12 at 19, went to uni for six months um, doing psychology and anthropology and after six months of that, I just went, oh, this is the same shit dressed up in a different package. And um, that sort of coincided with me being into stand-up. And so, you know, I, I would say 20 years of stand-up comedy is, is a 20-year anthropology degree anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the rest of your family. Tell me about your other two kids and tell me about your partner. Uh my other two children are four and one. The one-year-old is just about to turn two. 
Uh, yeah, so you're not you're not busy or anything. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. The uh, the two year old, uh, the almost two year old, is my favourite because she does this amazing thing. Um, she uh, doesn't speak. Oh God, I love her. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, the saddest thing has happened. She's just started speaking. I'm like, ah, God, well, that's it's better, over. It's better, over. Better have another one so we can get one that doesn't talk. Uh, <laughs> the four year old who will be five in February. I describe on stage as being mini Thor uh, because he oh, wow. he looks like a mini Thor. He has long blonde hair down the middle of his back and is just a fierce human being. His name, Walter, uh, actually means warlord <laughs> or leader of an army or something like that. Was that intentional? It wasn't intentional at all. Um, uh, Hannah, who's my partner, I'll get to him now, she, uh, we were just sort of tossing around names. And she's sort of, what do you think of Walter? I was like, yeah, it sounds like a strong name. I like the name. She goes, my great-grandfather's name was Walter, so it's a sort of family name. I was like, yeah, cool, suits me. And then Mum asked just after he was born. Uh, Hannah had Walter at home and Mum's plane landed about half an hour after he was born. So she got to the house. The umbilical cord was still connected. The, oh, wow. My big kid had cut it like it was, you know, this lovely moment and uh, went for a little walk around the block with my mum. And she goes, what are you thinking about calling him? And I said, oh, Hannah likes Walter because her great-grandfather's name was Walter. She goes, you know your great-grandfather's name is Walter as well. I was like, okay. Oh, no done. way. <laughs> so we went with that. Yeah, and then um, I hate saying we had Marigold at home. We didn't do it. Hannah did it. Um, we, we had <laughs> uh, Marigold at a home birth. Hannah's an incredible woman. Uh, I met her at the Brisbane Powerhouse. She was the front of house manager there. I was doing a show. And at the time I was doing a show, it wasn't about my divorce, but it was there was elements of my divorce in the show. I had a joke in there, which I won't give you all of, but basically I was talking about I didn't want to have any more kids uh, ever again. I said the only women I'm interested in are those that are barren or used to have a dick. <laughs> in fact, they can still have a dick. I don't want any more kids. So, you know, it was a pretty full-on statement to be making on stage. Uh, and anyway... That was uh, the year later. She I, was into that. Well, the year later we hooked up and um, I was, uh, like, from the moment I met her, I, I saw her across the room that I was performing in and just thought she was the most amazing human being I'd ever seen in my life. And um, then it took me a year to build up the courage just to ask her out for a drink. And, uh, you know, we, we got together and it was great and it was a pretty whirlwind relationship and we had Walter fairly quick into that and then after Walter was born I took her back to that room at the Brisbane Powerhouse and uh, proposed in the exact same position we were in where we first met so it was yeah it was really lovely. You sound like you've got a beautiful family but you've got three kids you've got a big job you've got a partner and you're away from family and at the moment they can't come and help the way they might like to what do you do when it comes to time just for you or space or relaxation? Is that just not an option during the pandemic? It's definitely not an option. Um, uh, it's definitely not happened. Uh, it's very difficult to get that time. Um, you know, I, I sort of the, the way it goes at the moment is I, I guess the time that Hannah gets is the time in the morning. I get up in the morning and do the breakfast and try and keep the kids quiet and try not to be an angry bear as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't slept much, but Hannah's still breastfeeding. 
Marigold and Marigold likes to sleep on your head or on your body. They do that, don't they? Or, or like she'll be on the nipple and then just cutting circles around <laughs> and while she's tweaking the God. other nipple. And they're very, they're very invasive, um, selfish humans, children. They really are the worst. <laughs> so, you know, I get up at about 5.30, I guess it is, when they're up. And um, that's Hannah has about three hours of sleep and that's about it. And then I guess my time, um, I get to leave the house a couple of times a week for different podcasts that I'm on and, and different radio shows that I'm guest on. And that's about it at the moment. I think there's part of it's been helpful for Hannah having me around, but maybe she'd be happy about touring starting up again. Yeah, well, I bet a whole bunch of this audience is looking forward to doing just that, coming and hearing you uh, tell stories and having some beers with you. Harley, thanks so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks for listening to my rambles. That's it for my conversation with Harley Breen. You can catch him and co-host Susie Youssef on Making It Australia, 6pm on Saturday nights on Channel 10. The show brings together a bunch of the country's best makers to compete in sewing and woodworking and pottery and all sorts of cool stuff. Don't go away though, because Tate McGregor will be here in just a moment for The Weekend List. Hello, Tate McGregor. It has been another long and difficult week, but there are some glimpses of sunlight on the horizon. Tell me what I should do this weekend. All right, if we're going for some upbeat sunshine weather, you want to get a good soundtrack going, and I want to put you on to the latest single by Perth Outfit Spacey Jane. It's called Lunchtime. You might know these guys. They're a surf pop rock band, and they had a debut album out last year that debuted at the number two spot on the ARIA charts called Sunlight. And this single, Lunchtime, I have loved from the first listen. It's really zingy, it has some in-your-face guitar rifts, but the lyrics are kind of sad. So the frontman, Caleb, wrote this track in the first lockdown last year for WA, and it was when he had a bit of hangover anxiety. But it talks about how it's okay to be young and not be okay. So if you're a little dose of Australian music education for the week, go check out Lunchtime by Spacey Jane. I love that. Thank you, Tate. You are the only person in my life who is bringing me good new music and I very much appreciate it. I want to recommend a podcast this week. I chatted to Ash London the other day, who is a brand new, as in brand, brand new, like two weeks old mum. And she has created a new podcast that is called the Ash London Podcast New Mum Who Dis. This is where she is aspiring to take her listeners on a journey, I suppose, a journey of career, of transformation, of womanhood. She's having raw and emotional conversations about motherhood as it is, as opposed to how we see it on the television and on advertisements. She speaks to some of the best known women in Australia. The first episode is out with Miranda Kerr and it's all about first time becoming a mum. So I think if that's you, if that is someone you know and someone you care about, if that is someone you'd love and someone you're in a relationship with, then this is a podcast for you to have a try. She just can't sit still, can she? You'd think being a new mum, you'd be like, I'm like 
overwhelmed, no time. But no, she started a podcast. Amazing. She's a multitasking genius, Tate, as are you. What else have you got for me today? All right, I've got a bone to pick with you, Jamila. Last week you did an anti-recommendation for Squid Game and I went ahead and watched it this week. In fact, I binged it because I... Heckin' loved it. I thought it was so good and it really lives up to the hype of Netflix's most streamed show. But I have a quick question. Did you watch it in Korean with subtitles or did you watch the dubbed version? Because they make for quite a different story. I only watched the first episode and I watched the Korean with subtitles because I find dubbing really annoying. And I could tell in my defence of having Auntie recommended the most downloaded show of all time, I could tell it was good. I liked the drama. I liked the storytelling, but it was just too brutal for me. And I don't know if it's lockdown and my mood more generally, but it was, I honestly had this visceral reaction of this is too much, but you know, I'm eating my words now, aren't I? A little bit, a little bit. Well, that is the way to watch it. You should watch it in Korean with subtitles, but it isn't for the faint hearted, as you mentioned. But I think it's just like such an interesting concept. It's almost like when you listen to a true crime podcast where you're really engaged in the gore of it, but that kind of scares you in itself. But this show has just such a beautiful storytelling the subplots are really strong. You get invested into them just as much as the main Squid Game itself. And it just has these really nice moments where you yourself as a viewer, I found I was reflecting on what choices I would have made if I was in the same spot as the characters and just morally where my compass lies. I think it's really worth it. And it's possibly one you need to try again, Jamila. All right. I might have a go. Or it might go in that category with that octopus documentary that I just insisted I wouldn't watch for so long. I have got an eat for you, everyone, and I need you to bear with me on this one because it doesn't sound good when you first say it. It's a kale salad, stick with me, stick with me, with pecorino and walnuts. This is the single best salad I have had in ages. And if you, like me, are doing a lot of picnicking right now, this is where you want to get into. It's on Smitten Kitchen, which is an extraordinary food website by a great food blogger. You have the kale chopped up really, really, really fine. You just chuck it in the food processor or the blender. It has homemade breadcrumbs or panko breadcrumbs, your choice, in there. There are golden raisins, pecorino cheese, and lots and lots of vinegar. It is the most delicious thing I've had in so long. It's one of those salads where you put it out and weirdly people eat the salad first before anything else. A game changer for picnics. Absolutely. (laughs) That's all we've got time for today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to The Weekend Briefing. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode, then you should follow us on the listener app where you can subscribe or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early, when the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.